This is Dr. Charles Parker, and you're listening to Core Brain Journal. It's a place where I connect both fresh discoveries and interesting different perspectives from advanced mind science with the realities of real people and everyday life down on Main Street. Well, welcome aboard, folks. Dr. Charles Parker. Here we are at episode 146 at Core Brain Journal. And we have an interesting guest today who's, who's going to hit on a very, very controversial topic in so many aspects of what in the broad mental health field. And what she's going to talk about is trauma uh, and issues of dependency and recovery. And her name is Jody Prouse. Thanks for joining us, Jody. We really appreciate it. Thanks. I'm very grateful to be here. So what I'm going to do is introduce her in just a moment before we get started. I'm just going to say a few words from our, we're grateful to our sponsors. And the first one I'm going to talk about is Direct Health Access Laboratory. You folks already know how much we love the reality of data here at CBJ. We want to face reality. And today we welcome our clinical friend and that new sponsor partner, Direct Health Access Laboratory. They set a new standard for evaluating methylation cryptopyrrole, and copper challenges that directly affect brain function. If you measure it, you know what's going on. And remember, if they can serve professionals in Nigeria, they can certainly help you out there in Fargo. So stay tuned. And then our second uh, sponsor that we're really pleased to have on board uh, comes from Norfolk, Virginia. And you already know how we appreciate detailed improvements in mind care. We go for the details. And today, we're pleased to uh, welcome this sponsor and partner with a deep interest in fresh options to address the complexity of adolescent treatment failure nationally and internationally. And these folks are built TRICARE friendly. The Barry Robinson Center here in Norfolk provides a holistic environment that sets children, teens, and families, and families, I need to say it twice, on the path to healing. From personal experience here in Norfolk, I know their work with families we've shared, and they are a truly different residential experience. More in a moment, folks. So let's go ahead and introduce Jody. So Jody has a lot to talk about, and I think what it's going to do is I'm going to really do what I can to help her talk about it so I don't bore you with my intro, but I think to get started, just to you know, whet your appetite a little bit, Jody Prouse is the embattled women's champion. She helps women recognize that they have the strength to transcend family trauma and the power to disengage from codependency with those family members who are at the heart of the drama that they had previously. Her mission is to help women recognize that love is the reason not to engage, that taking care of oneself first is not a betrayal are selfish as some think. Making the hardest choices may seem to be cruel or callous, but in fact are healthy for all parties. What she's talking about, as you know, is boundaries. Gotta set them. If you don't set them, you will live another person's life for the rest of your life. So Jody spent more than 30 years seeking to protect a brother, ultimately lost to alcoholism, and she was giving so much it nearly cost her marriage and risked endangering her children's mental health. So I'm not going to talk more about it because she's got so many family members that are involved with substance abuse. It's really transformed her into a serious 
recovery maven. In that regard, I'll just close with this point in the introduction. She's written a book told powerfully in the book is called The Sun is Gone, A Sister Lost in Secrets, Shame, and Addiction, and How I Broke Free. And it talks about how she grew up in this uh, situation when she was a child. So we'll talk more about that. So with that, Jody, first of all, let's get started with what you're doing right now. If you give us a little bit of beginning of who you are, what you're doing, and, and what's, uh, what it's like in your life. Well, you know, I always say I'm no different than everybody else. You know, I'm a daughter and a mom and a wife and a friend and a neighbor. But what most didn't know is that I am also the daughter, stepdaughter, granddaughter, sister-in-law, daughter-in-law, niece, great-niece, aunt, and cousin to alcoholics. But nothing impacted me more than when my younger brother, Brett, became addicted to alcohol. And it has just it's changed not only did it change my life you know for for many many years but this story has really propelled me to want to help other people and use some of these experiences to shed light on this often stigmatized and not talked about topic mm -hmm. yeah the whole family relationship i mean the diversity of dependency in your family i mean how could a person not be programmed in the context of that difficult reality. I mean, so how did you ever come to an awareness? How did you break out of the situation? How old were you? What was going on in your life? How did you actually sort of that, have that transformational moment? Well, you know, we don't know exactly what causes addiction. It can be heredity and it can be environment and it can be all those things. And, and with us, you know, I was the oldest child. And so I think I was old enough when I was six to kind of take away um, the negative of what was going on in our alcoholic home. Like alcohol to me from a very early age was the cause of everything bad divorce and infidelity and fighting and dysfunction and, and then you have another child my brother who's two years old that can't really remember but was always scared and fearful and really dependent on me to look after him when some of these things were going on and you know you say that because I can look back and see that so clearly but as an adult you don't until your life starts unraveling. And my brother became addicted and his life uh, completely took control over mine. I, um, I did sacrifice my marriage and my own sons and my own personal health um, and really had to look back and rewind to see what happened to us that maybe led us um, to the place that we were at. When you say that, what was the, what happened? Were you, did you have him live in your house? Were you going over to his house? What was actually the activity that, that was troublesome and ultimately quite difficult for you? You know, it was the year 2000 when he was 28 years old um, that I thought he had a problem. There was no big blazing red flag saying, you know, your brother um, life is going to go downhill, but there was small little things like his personality was starting to change. He was drinking and driving. He was coming around less and less to see me. And, you know, we were the closest of friends and it, it, um, it was just unlike him. And then as it progressed, 
all of, I did all of those things. I invited him to live with us. I went to treatment and therapy with him. I went to um, counseling. Uh, I cleaned his house. I can't even say how many times. Um, I, you know, I, I had a clear boundary that I would never give him money and I never made excuses, but I did get too involved. And I see that now. Um, he wasn't making some of the decisions um, and changing and what was recommended from the people he was going to see. So you were taking care of him and he wasn't taking care of himself. I think I was doing that for almost six years. And, wow. and at that time, you, you know, your, your heart is pulling you in one direction. And I had, I was going to these people. So I thought I knew what I was doing. And until I really, I think, came to the lowest point of my life and realized nothing is changing, his addiction, you know, his alcoholism is getting worse. I felt he was going to die. I felt like a failure to him. I felt like a failure to my husband and my children. I mean, this had been going on for six years. Um, mm. That's when I finally got the courage to get help for myself. So what was the transformational moment? What happened where you just got smacked by the two by four in the head? Well, I, I'm a very big believer in therapy. I think therapy helped save my life back then. And I did believe my brother was going to die. It is what all the treatment centers and all the professionals were telling us. And that's what they tell every addicted person unless they find sobriety and recovery. And I got the courage really believing that, you know, if I continued to do these enabling patterns for my brother and not really make him be responsible for his own life, uh, I, I thought he was, he was going to die. And, and I thought I could only live with myself if I set this healthy boundary and I gave him one option and that option was sobriety and recovery. And, um, and so that's when I drew the healthy boundary. And I think it was better for him, for me, my own family. And it should have been done a long time before that. Unfortunately, uh, many of our family members, um, we were all lost. And so they, they weren't drawing that line. So then they would continue the drinking with him. They weren't supporting his recovery. And he went back down the tubes. Is that what happened? Yeah, I think when he would come back from, from treatment, he would be okay for a while. I think you're told there, it's no secret, to find sober friends, find good influences, yeah, find yeah. people that will support your recovery. Right. Um, but, you know, the complicated factor is what if you come back and some of those people are your family and some of those negative people are the ones you love most in this whole world. And I think it just adds a whole other dynamic of of how hard it is to break free and, and something that I had to do. Well, if an uh, individual family members who care about him are reprogramming him in the direction that it doesn't matter, you know, that everybody's okay. We're not, you know, this is everybody's too tight with you. It's not a big deal. You can make it, you know, and they're just taking you off the program. Then they're actually, they're encouraging him to Jones. Yeah. And it, it, it's sad to say, and it, it's hard to believe that this goes on in families, but it does. I think some of those family members was 
not uh, aren't healthy themselves. Yeah. And if they don't get in the program, this we see this happen in recovery uh, activities all the time. If the family's not in the recovery program, the best treatment centers, and you know this already because you're in the field, the best treatment centers really strongly emphasize the importance of family involvement. And the family has to get into recovery and, and get out of the situation of either being too critical or being too supportive. They go, their, their dependence and counterdependence patterns set the person in that old counterproductive groove. Oh, exactly. And I am such an advocate for, for family involvement. I would not recommend any program that doesn't have active family members um, involved. I think that's, that's an important, important part of the puzzle. So were you, let's talk a little bit about your recovery, quote unquote, because it is a recovery from the addictive patterns. You may not have been abusing, you may not have been an alcoholic, but you were in a pattern of relative non-awareness. You were in a pattern of relative denial. And then you had a wake-up call, and then you began working a program. You wouldn't be here today if you weren't working a program. So on some level, what was that individual psychotherapy program? Were you going to um, uh, ACOA meetings? Uh, what, was, what, were you, what was actually happening? Uh, I went to so much therapy and, you know, I, I went to a little bit of therapy during the six years with him. Um, but when I finally drew that boundary in 2006, I spent a good five years in therapy. I still go to this day, not very often, but every once in a while where I just feel maybe I'm a little bit off. But I also read books. Um, you know, not everyone is blessed to be able to afford therapy sessions. And there's amazing books out there that can teach you about codependency or toxic relationships or breaking free. And, and I do follow ACOA articles like adult children of alcoholics. And, and I listen to other people speak and, and all that really does help me heal and, and make me realize I did do the right thing. Mm -hmm. You know, when, when other people think, I abandoned my brother or I gave up on him. You know, it breaks my heart that sometimes I, I see uh, people that are addicted actually say that, you know, my family gave up on me. And I'm just one to say maybe their heart couldn't take it anymore. You know, this is extremely painful. And, you know, I set my boundary with my brother out of love because I think that's what he needed for his recovery. You know, sometimes uh, delivering the blow of withholding can make a, church, a person actually chase recovery because they're realizing, I mean, that's what intervention is all about if you think about it. If you really have a good, well-planned intervention, you basically say, we can't hang out with you if you keep doing this. I mean, I'm being reductionistic about the way yeah. I'm saying it, but... But basically, it's like, we're going to re withdraw our love. We're not going to hang out with you because we can't stand watching you go down the tubes. We love you. We care about you. But we're not going to watch you do this. We care about you enough to not be involved in your destruction. Yeah. And first, that is exactly what I finally had to say. I mean, I was going down 
with my brother and I had children I had to look after. But we get such mixed signals because even I hear lot, lots, people won't change if they don't want to and you can't make someone go to treatment. And, you know, people have all sorts of different motivation to change, right? They're going to get fired from their job or their wife's going to divorce them. Or you're right. Your family can't continue to see and watch you do these things. And just that's, a, that's done out of a loving, caring place, not, not out of abandonment and giving up on that individual. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, I, the issue of what is love all about? You know, how does a person really define what love is? People think love is just taking care of the other individual. But, you know, if you, if you really help them introduce a reality to them without harming them, giving them an opportunity to see the pain of what's actually going on, feel it a little bit without kicking them right complete to the curb, then they can say, oh, I get what you're talking about. This isn't working for me. I now see what you're talking about. Because I think all of us learn through pain. I don't think we really learn uh, through just intellectual stimulation. I mean, we're all excited about ideas. I mean, I love talking to a person like you, but I think the real issue is you and I both as human beings don't get it if we don't feel the pain. You know, there's just not going to be a bit of change. And that, that's not to say we should go around introducing pain in people's lives, but I think we should help people recognize the pain that they are experiencing and why they're experiencing it as opposed to, hey, it's going to be okay. We're going to hang out with you and schmooze you around and uh, and help your denial. You know, the issue is, these things that you're doing to yourself are painful and that's what you're experiencing. Oh yes. And you know, consequence, but consequence is painful, isn't it? Um, and you know, I always say that's how we teach our children to grow into functioning adults. Like they're, they're punished or there's a consequence when, when they do something wrong. And I think in my brother's story for a long time, um, they just had us surrounding him. And we always say, you know, put a pillow down, a soft place to fall. And mm -hmm. that definitely was going on. And it just allowed this disease to progress. And he was in denial. I mean, denial is very real. It's not some excuse that people make up. Um, he just did not think it was that bad. So did he have treatment centers? Did he go to uh, residential care? What, what actually, yeah. what was his treatment like? Yeah, over the uh, six years, so from 2000 to 2006, he did go to uh, six or seven uh, rehab centers. So some were for 30 days, some were upwards of 90 days, although I'll say he came home early on two occasions. But I do, I do think it's important to recognize when he was going through this, at the time, the doctors and the people we saw, it was just very much concentrate on the drinking, the drinking, you have to stop drinking. Mm -hmm. But in 2017, we just know so much more now. Yeah. And we know that childhood, early childhood trauma can cause anxiety, depression, more severe mental health issues, and even things like suicidal ideation or... Uh, drug and alcohol addiction. Mm -hmm. And so now, if my brother is going through it right now, I think had he went to a treatment center that dealt with concurring disorders and he mm -hmm. had gotten help with, for his mental health and his addiction, 
um, I think it might have made all the difference because at the time it was it was just alcohol. And although I will say it still would have required my brother to change and to deal with all the pain. Mm-hmm. Well, Jody, listen, we're going to take a little break here. And what I'm going to do is come back. When we come back, I'm going to ask you a question. And it has to do with what was it that actually turned you around? What was the pain? What was the event that you said, okay, I can't do this anymore? That's number one question. I'll tell you the second question I'm going to ask you. Is I want to make sure that you take a moment to tell us about your book and the message in your book and where, what, you know, the mission with that book itself. It's a message there. It's a big message. And then, so we talk about the message in the book and we talk about your transformation when we get back. Is that going to be okay? That's perfect. Thanks. All right. We'll talk back in just a moment. Now we'll take a break, folks. Well, folks, you know, as well as I do, that psychiatric treatment failure, especially after multiple medication trials and those very, very brief hospitalizations may prove insufficient to deal at home with the complexity of troubled children and and those adolescents from 6 to 17 years old. Improved care, those next mandatory steps, should include a more comprehensive approach to address those multiple levels of challenges, from family to peers to school, diagnostically from defiance to depression on every level for families, including military families internationally. The Barry Robinson Center's 32-acre open college-like campus in Norfolk, Virginia, provides safety and security and clean, comfortable living. How do we know? We refer folks over there all the time, strongly endorse what they're doing. So for further information and informed interview, connect at this page, barryrobinson.org forward slash core. Well, you folks already know that here at Core Brain Journal, we're on a mission to introduce you to resources that make significant contributions to the investigation of those predictable mind science applications. Our colleagues at DHA Lab Group provide a real difference with treatment options for people at every level, from first awareness of mind problems to those frustrating times when even well-informed treatment becomes surprisingly unpredictable. For my entire professional life, from psychoanalysis to brain scans, I've searched for, yes, improved predictability. The good news for all of us, from professionals to patients, remarkably effective research offers useful, cost-effective, organic options far beyond guesswork with psychiatric medications alone. DHA lab tests measure unbalanced biomedical details through easily available testing now available globally for a variety of molecular answers from, for example, methylation, copper, and cryptopyrrole challenges. Check in for more details at dhalab.com core. That's d-h-a-l-a-b.com forward slash core. Well, thanks, folks. I know you are as curious as I am because if, if we're going to learn from things and pain is a teacher then we would like Jody to tell us what that pain was so we can identify, we can get in her head a little bit, and we can experience it with her so we can think about how she got out of it. And the other question we're going to ask in just a moment after that is about her book. What's the message? What's the mission there? So how did you turn yourself around with all that going on? I mean, you had a very dysfunctional family. Yeah, well, I think, I, like I said, I was at my lowest point, and I remember being in therapy. And you know, I'm five foot seven, and I was 108 pounds, and I wasn't going to work or sleeping. And 
I was just, I was feeling like I was failing everyone, my own family, and I wasn't saving my brother. And, and I remember my therapist just, Jody, you're not responsible for their lives. And when he said that, he meant my brother, my sister, and my mother. And it was just a wake-up call for me. And I, I, you know, even since then, I've been working through that reality. It's very hard to break free from something that, and a pattern that you've been doing for more than 30 years. No one said to me when I was six years old, you have to look after us. But all of that was put on my shoulders from a very early age. And so it was my subconscious that was doing it. And so that's, that's what I got work for. But at the end of the day, I, I, I just got that strength, really believing it's what my brother needed and, and my own family. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was a, an exact interpretation. You know, studying psychoanalysis, they had this phrase called an inexact interpretation where you said something almost correct and let the patient come around to it. But they were talking straight stuff to you. That therapist said, look, you've got this issue. So it would have been a painful realization for you to accept the truth in that statement, for you to like, okay, I have to rethink who I am and what I'm doing with my life. And am I living his life or am I living my life? Do I, I have a choice there. Somewhere in there is what turned you around. And you talked about pain earlier of, I remember I was crying hysterically. I mean, for me to have this realization, because at the end of the day, on that day, being 39 years old, I had to choose between my mother, my brother, my sister, or my own family. And uh, it's, it's very, very painful to, to have to make that choice. Well, I think the thing is, I don't know you well. We've just been talking for a short period of time. But I think a person who is an inborn, you're kind of a family hero in the whole situation because of your desire to fix and take care of and make it happen. Uh, you're, you're strong on the outside. You have a desire to, to fix and, and heal. But your vulnerability on the inside was what was mixing you up. Because on the outside, you look like you were together, but on the inside, you were feeling way too vulnerable in a situation. And that therapist helped you say, look, you're going to have to cope with that underlying vulnerability. And the vulnerability would have been engendered. Now, you tell me if I'm right or wrong. I'm just talking with you about this. Would have been engendered by your sense of failure as a caretaker. And you had to then say, look, that's totally, and somewhere in there, you accepted the point that you were not successful at it and that, in fact, you couldn't be fixing them. Then that's, there's a limitation to what you could do. Now, you were caught in trial identifications with everybody because you were trying to hear them out, listen to them, figure out what was going on. And there's a certain point where you had to disconnect from that because the time, the effort, and all the pain you were going through, you just had to let go of it. I did, and I agree with with your analysis of me because it's right, right on. And you know, learning these things about yourself because a lot of it is in your subconscious, and you don't realize until you go to therapy or treatment um, why you behave in a certain way. I always knew why my brother and I were so close. I mean, I remember those nights um, when we were little children but I just didn't understand 
that it just made me feel like I had to had to look after everyone else um, and not look after myself. Well, it sounds like in your dysfunctional family, you were going to stand up and be counted because you realized that people were not taking care of people correctly and you were going to be the counterpoint to that. So I'm, I don't know. I don't know you from yeah. that. I'm just guessing. Okay. So you, you're welcome to correct me. I mean, but what happens in when you have a dysfunctional family like that and a family hero, they're going to stand up and be counted and make something happen. And they're going to do everything they can to reframe, rethink, and fix the people that are broken. And why not fix this younger, vulnerable person? You're not going to fix the parents. So then she, be, you know, as, as they said in the Blues Brothers, I'm on a mission from God. <laughs> you know, I'm going to go get this boy. He's a vulnerable kid. He's younger than I am. I'm going to make it happen for him. I've, I've got to because nobody on a deeper level, nobody was taking care of you either. So you had the pain of not being taken care of. You knew what that pain was like, and you identified that situation with him, and then you modeled the uh, mastery, the self-mastery. It was you taking care of somebody to actually overcome the un unhappiness of not being taken care of properly yourself. So then you, in a way, were, were doing what you hoped would be done to you in some constructive way. And so, but in that mastery, you were failing because in the sense you were throwing yourself away in an attempt to do something that you really couldn't do. So, so that whole self-mastery and, and helpfulness thing got blown because, in fact, you weren't practicing self-mastery. You were practicing, get this, a terrible word, unself-mastery. Yeah. <laughs> You're going the wrong way. Yeah. I totally, I totally agree. And for a girl that, you know, uh, it, it may sound uh, silly, but I was always grateful for the role that was put on my shoulders because mm -hmm. I thought it allowed me in this world to be strong and stoic and, and be able to do any challenge that was presented to her and, and all of those things. And then at the end, when I just find out that I was failing or I, f you know, felt that I was failing, I, I you know, I don't think I was because I was never responsible to begin with. Yeah. Key point. And there's nothing silly about that, Jody. I mean, that is, that is, that's how all of us try to do it. I mean, I think anybody that's a therapist, in a way, you're a therapist, I'm a therapist. We get here by trying to do the right thing. And there's certain points somewhere in our development as, as professionals, there's only so much you can do. And so if a person's, if that person that you're working with is not taking responsibility for themselves, we can ride that train for a while and do everything we can to sort of kick them in the pants and get them to be responsible and talk directly to them and, and encourage them, whatever. But there's a certain point where if they aren't going to do what they need to do, and I think that's one of the big things with the vertical management system overall in uh, substance abuse recovery, opiate addiction, the whole thing is the person comes in in a state of passivity and wants to be taken care of and they don't convert into self-management. And if they don't convert into self-management, which is what you were trying to do, you were modeling self-management. You say, look, I'm managing myself. You got to manage yourself. If we do this, we'll be together. They don't convert. Then you are SOL. As they say in the street, you're just, you can't do it anymore. And, it, and I think you said a very perceptive thing. You know, you just realized the limitations of what you could do and couldn't do. So there was no reason to feel bad about it because it just was beyond your control in the first place. You had so many people programming passivity that they were arguing with you 
on a behavioral level about that passivity is okay and we'll just take care of you. And they misinterpreted what love was all about. So what you were doing was coming in there and you're saying, look, this is what love is about. I'm going to respect you. I'm going to, I'm going to be aware of your strength and I'm going to talk to your strength. I'm not going to talk to you like you're a helpless victim baby can't do it. I'm going to talk to you very directly. This is what I think you can do. And if you don't do it, I can't do anything else for you. So you were actually encouraging them, enabling him to, to take responsibility for himself. Yes. And that, that exact thing is what um, has, you know, my brother did lose his battle with alcohol addiction in, in 2012. And, and so that was five years after I drew that painful boundary. Mm -hmm. But what you just said is what allows me to live this life, not without regrets of some of the things I did or, um, you know, pain and loss and having to deal with the trauma and all those things. But what I don't have is guilt because I know I did the right thing back then. Yeah, yeah you did. Yeah. And, um, and it was done out of love. Well, now tell me this. Let's talk about your book a little bit. This is our second question we want to get into because I just love the title of the book. I mean, we were talking a little bit, just two seconds before we got online here, about the bright, the dark, the, you know, the sun is gone. I mean, it's a, an evocative title. There's no question about it. So the title is The Sun is Gone, A Sister Lost in Secrets, Shame, and Addiction, and How I Broke Free. So you are the sister that was lost in secrets, lost in shame, and addiction in that entire family situation, and this is how you ultimately broke free. And, and that's what the book is about. So tell us a little more about what your mission is with the book and what you describe. Uh, perhaps give us a little hint more about what you're trying to accomplish with the book. Sure. Well, even during this journey with my brother, I said I, I read self-help books and things for myself, but I also gravitated towards memoirs about addiction and mental illness. And I just, I wanted to feel that someone else knew what I was going through. And, but what I felt was they just give a partial glimpse. Most, of course, are written by the addict in recovery with a happy ending, yeah. but not the whole story. So I wanted to create the whole story. The book starts when my brother's two years old and I'm six, and it really does take you over a 40-year span. So you are on the journey with us every complicated step of the way. And... I want to not only have for other families, if they see themselves in there, that they do find the courage to change, but also for other people that just think, you know, this is a life's choice, that, that our loved ones are just choosing this. And that maybe when they see that someone that's two years old, that things can happen to them in life that change who they'll be forever, that it will just give others some more compassion and empathy to, you know, those struggling with addiction and mental illness in this world? Well, give them a little bit of hope because here's a person who pulled out of it. I mean, really, my sense of the title is that you said, hey, look, I faced all these traumas. This isn't really about my brother. This is about me and my own self-realization. This is how I came to grips with myself as a human being because I was myself lost even though I wasn't an alcoholic. I was lost in the dependency patterns of my family, the denial 
and the helpless victim roles that were going on with everybody in my family. And I decided I had to break three of every one of those messages from every living family member, which is what you had to do. And your husband was not with you on that unhealthy side. He was on the healthy side. He probably was drawing you away, supporting you because look, you're together. You know, if he was the other way, you wouldn't be together. But he, he's, he's, he's on the direction of helping you do the evolution. So it's really a book about personal transformation, I think. You tell me if I'm right or wrong. No, you're absolutely right. And, you know, it's what I say at the end of the book, my Oprah's aha moment. I wrote this book and I thought it was a, my, the story of my brother and alcoholism. And until I got to the end, I just realized it wasn't his story after all. It's mine. Mm -hmm. And having to break free from just all those feelings and what was ingrained in me from the time I was a little child. Um, because you're taught you're responsible for other people and, and all this is put on your shoulders, it doesn't make it true. And so it very much, you know, even I say for myself, the book is dark at times, but it is also full of so much light and so much love. And my life is wonderful now. I am still with my husband uh, after 27 years. And I do also say I do truly believe uh, for my brother that the sun is gone, but that he has also found light. Mm -hmm. Now that's a heavy thought. That is a heavy thought. So he's come out the other side. So, you know, the issue is, you know, that, that's a whole nother deeper, deeper question that, of course, we'll never know the answer to until we get there ourselves. But the, it's good that you have that sense of it because you know there was a kind-hearted, good guy in there that just couldn't come out. And what happened was he could because he couldn't actually, he didn't actually there was a programming going on. Now you tell me if I'm right. I'm guessing now, because the more you talk, I'm getting into it. But it sounds to me like your whole family was programming you to take care of them, to tell you the truth, because they couldn't take care of themselves. And on some level, you hinted at this in just the previous comments, just a little bit, somewhere in the, in the, in the, in the pattern, whether it was your mother, whoever it was, you had permission, encouragement, support for we can't take care of them, you can take care of them. And somewhere in there, that wasn't just you doing it on yourself. These were people that were abnegating their own responsibilities and leaning on you to take care of it. And you were actually taking care of your mother as well as him by taking care of him. And that was a message, I'll bet you a dollar to a donut, from her as well as from, as well as from the rest of the family. Tell me if I'm right or wrong about that. You're absolutely right. And I think it does really show that these are patterns in families. I, I'm not unique. Right. You, you talk about when you come out of alcoholic homes and then why it's generational. Why, I don't know what the exact statistics are, but the statistics are someone in the next generation will be an alcoholic. And we, you know, they write books on us. Um, and when I, I and I don't mean me specifically, I mean that come from a background like we have, and 
therapists are taught about us in school. And so that is, that is spot on. And I'll tell you, our story gets even more complicated because when I drew, yes, I drew that boundary with my brother and to made, to made, me made feel like I was abandoning him from the other close members of my family. I mean, it made it that much harder. Yeah, yeah. Well, on a happy note, taking it down another place, I want to say one thing about it. You're living in God's country out there. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am. You're living in Alberta. I don't get. I don't get a Canadian accent from you at all. You're now is that Sylvan Lake, Alberta, and the cottage in Oroville, Washington. That's northern Washington, I'm sure. Is it close to the Canadian boundary up there? Yeah, it's just, uh, we're going to Oroville actually next week again, and it's right on Lake Soyuz, and it is just the most beautiful place you've ever seen, and I talk about it at the end of my book, because there was a miracle that happened there that I think is a sign from my brother. Do you want to share that, or is it too personal? Um, well, I'll say, I'd, we'd never been to Oroville um, ever and we went last year and on a spur of the moment we bought a little cottage there and i live at the lake so it was the last thing in the world that uh we were looking for and so when i was there last august i had had a meeting with my publisher and we were securing the name title and all those things and i was parked at a grocery store and my husband had ran in and when he jumped back into the truck I told him to turn it off and he couldn't tell I'd been crying. Now, I don't think about my brother every minute of every day, but at that precise moment, I was thinking about him because um, I knew the book was coming out and, and for the, having that meeting that day. And I was just sitting there thinking, you know, did I get the book right? And can you see me? And do you miss me? And you know, even are you there? And, mm -hmm. and I looked up and I still cannot explain. <laughs> but behind the grocery store is this tiny little mountain. And in big white rocks, it says Jody. And there's no other names on that mountaintop. And uh, yeah, that's, that's how I end the book. Wow. That's heavy. That's very heavy. I mean, that's, let me get, let me get the number of letters on that. That is a total of five letters. That was a big, and, but it was in the cracks in the rock. It was like a, a wall and the, and the cracks were in the wall or the rocks were arranged. How did that happen? It was just the rocks were arranged and, Whew. you know, I'm in a, I'm in a country I shouldn't be in. And, you know, I live in Canada and mm -hmm. just parked right there at that grocery store and, and I didn't look to the left or look to the right or wow. I just, I just looked straight up. And, you know, that, that's the other thing of, of just this, this story does have a happy ending, just, you know, maybe not for me and my family. And, but I just do believe it can cause a happy ending for someone else that is struggling that, that also feels as lost as I was. I didn't know I was lost. I think that's, that's the big deal. That's the reason to write a book like this because it's a transformational moment to realize what's going on. I mean, that's the whole purpose of this conversation with you and I right here and the purpose of your book. You're like, hey, I did figure, I'm not, I don't have my whole life figured out, 
I don't have every single minute of my life, every single relationship, but I can tell you this realization of this pattern was constructive for me in the end, as painful as it was. That's what you're saying. Mm -hmm. And I want to share that with you and hope that it's constructive for you as well. Absolutely. And, and I think the biggest thing is to be able to say, I need help. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What you were doing then is that phrase right there was an indication of submitting to the larger order of community as opposed to, I'm just going to keep doing it my way. I mean, if you think about it, your attempt to fix him was a non-recovering position. And when you actually submit to the larger order, I can't have it my way, you're actually on a recovery path. Absolutely. And that's beautiful because, um, you know, even the fact that my brother would lose his battle, we don't get everything that we want out of this life. And all we can do is learn and accept and heal. Yeah, so true. Well, that was very beautiful, beautifully said. You did a good job. really appreciate talking to you. I think we got to wind up here. The time is about done. But I, I want to thank you so much for coming on board and sharing your personal story. You know, the book, and thank you for having the book. We're going to have that highlighted on the show notes. And, uh, you know, I think the last thing we want to do is just leave people with a place they can go to connect with you. If you want to just say that, we'll, we'll wrap up shortly thereafter. Absolutely. I'd love to hear from anyone and, and hear something about their personal story. So you can reach me at jodyprouse.com. So it's J-O-D-E-E. P-R-O-U-S-E dot com. Well, thanks once again for coming on board. And we really appreciate it. I think you're making a major, major contribution. And it was just a great time talking to you. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. You have a good one, Jody. You as well. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Core Brain Journal. We're working every day behind the scenes to bring you reports that connect research benches with those street trenches. Here we share the complexity of mind science because, as you know, details really do matter. One of the most pervasive, misunderstood challenges is how commonplace medications, like those written for ADHD, are used so regularly without clear guidelines. If you think you'd like more specifics, take a minute to download my two-page PDF packed with video links and references on the absolute essentials of how to start ADHD medications. They're easily available at corebrainjournal.com forward slash start. Thanks for listening. Do connect and stay tuned. Together we can make a difference.